The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. It's Metropolis. Look closer. Is it not more dirty than clean, more dark than light? Is this the future? No, no. Very much the present. What is this place? A parallel dimension. What? A second metropolis. A sibling reality coexisting with our own, hidden from us by a curtain of space now parted. Thousand details exactly alike. And a thousand as startlingly different as the infinite choices at every moment. Do I want to know why so many people are wearing guns, or is that just going to upset me more? Well, from what little I can gather, people are frightened, cynical, have no faith that society can protect them. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, March 28, 2013. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Journalistic polemics from Watergate to Rob Ford. That's one of the subjects we'll be talking about today near the end of the show. Also be talking about the missing economic link. What is missing in all these plans that our politicians seem to be making for the economy? And of course, I'll be starting off with my theme, Lost at City Hall, where we seem to be seeing them always planning to plan. Hey, eh, Robert? Yes. Constantly. Indeed. 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation or email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. And to start off the show today, I guess I'm going to start off with uh, City Hall. You know, Robert, if there's one thing we should have all learned by now, it's that politicians simply cannot plan an economy, let alone run a hot dog stand, as they say. This is not an insult. It's just the way it is. Each acts in accordance with his nature and identity. And that's because politicians are politicians and not economic planners. Politicians are politicians and not hot dog stand operators. Each of whom is a million times the expert of any politician in their own area of expertise and legitimate jurisdiction. Politicians, on the other hand, their sole purpose and job is to legislate or make policy, if you want to call it that, not to plan economies or run hot dog stands, which, by the way, there's a push to put have street vendors uh, licensed more readily in the city. Have you heard about that? No, I haven't. Yeah, they're, co- collecting, uh, they're collecting signatures online for, for this whole thing. Mm-hmm. So maybe we will have some hot dog stands <laughs> in the city. Now, I heard a fascinating set of conversations, all indirectly related, on another radio station this week over at CJBK, where over the past couple days, or first couple days of the week, I heard speaking London Councillor and Chair of the Investment and Economic Prosperity Committee, Joe Swan, on the subject of having a single common agenda for the city's business and jobs development plan. Another was auto market expert Dennis DeRossier reacting to the city's plans to place a few free charging stations downtown for all the folks who drive electric cars. And from London blogger and former free press editor Phil McLeod commenting on his spin on the situation. And he did all this in conversation with Andy Utman and Steve Garrison. 
And after hearing about all the city's grandiose plans for free charging stations, a reorganized and centralized economic prosperity committee, promises of jobs amidst a sudden spike in London's unemployment rate to around 9%, Garrison made a rare comment that I don't usually clue in with him on, but he made a very interesting observation. You know, he says to... uh, in their conversation, he says, look it, we've got a pollution plant, a reservoir about a year ago, two and a half to three million dollars put into it, lawsuits going, nothing happening for a year and a half. There's an ongoing dam problem at Springbank Park, three million dollars put in, no updates, lawsuits in operation. Do you know they might not open Storybook Gardens this year? That's one of the things they're talking about. Uh, Well, you know, I'm (laughs) <laughs> it doesn't affect me. No, it doesn't Sorry. affect you, but still, it's something the city's been doing ever since I was a kid. Is and it is it a, a proper function of the government to be running Storybrook Gardens? Sorry? Well, they have the park, and the park has always been part of that function, and that's a side issue. But uh, in any case, Garrison commented, this council is idea bankrupt right now. And what will be their legacy? And he thought about, you know, Jay Stanford, the big, you know, here we are with this big story of unemployment, but boy, we're putting car, uh, free, free charging stations down there, downtown for people with electric cars. Oh, how many people, I wonder? How many people? Well, have electric cars. Oh, almost none. That's what we're going to get to next. Mm. So, the frustration with the city council's lack of accountability for things already undertaken certainly didn't garner any credibility for the city's latest plans, among them the latest in the green religion propaganda campaign the city's been waging for, I don't know how many years now. But we heard from Dennis DeRosier, who of course is a car expert, he's uh, of the market of, of cars, on the subject of electric cars, and to answer your question... Oh, he says, I'm a tree hugger myself, and this plan is worse than a stupid idea. He says, London City Hall never calls me because I'm practical about it. I've studied it to death, and they don't want to know the truth. (laughs) These are literally his words. From a tree hugger. Yeah. Part of that truth is that there have only been between, here's your answer, Robert, two to 3,000 electric cars sold in the entire country of Canada. (laughs) (laughs) The major problem being, as uh, DeRosier described it, was the internal combustion engine has become too efficient for electric to compete. And so if you're going to invest to get your money back in terms of payback time, he says payback time is forever, as he put it. And he talked about wasting taxpayers' money on charging stations. And he says, quote, it's all politics to show that they're green. A better strategy, he says, you take three nice signs that say future home of electric charging station, except you'll have to pay union wages to set up the sign, so it'll cost you a few hundred bucks. <laughs> That's how funny it was. He also referred to something called gaming targets. I never heard of that, didn't quite understand it, but apparently it's some kind of fake fuel efficiency target credits earned by companies from governments when they create these electric cars, you know? And to me, that's still further evidence of the destructive effects politicians wreak upon industry and consumers alike to achieve some sort of secondary political objective. And that's where we get into all these problems. And then, of course, um, there was the the, the, the in interview of the day, from which was with Joe Swan, who is, of course, from the Economic Development Committee. And... Uh, they call it the Investment and Economic Prosperity Committee, and he's talking about how the business in the city of London is going to change this week. Now, a lot, a lot of this is still in flux. They're still talking about this. I don't know how much of this is co- going to come to pass, but apparently what they want to do, according to Joe, is consolidate um, all the efforts of those funded by 
the city for job creation so that we have, quote, a very tangible, practical plan and one that we can measure. He wants to see a higher degree of cooperation, a higher degree of accountability. He says the system's too fragmented now because it's too difficult, and this is interesting, for the city to see our efforts and results. We want everybody together on a common agenda, he says. Um, the federal government is announcing infrastructure grants, he warns us. Provincial government is looking for more jobs in southwestern Ontario through the Southwest Economic Fund. There's two government plans. And London has yet to take advantage of those two programs. So oh, guess, so let's create another one. So that's why we're all re reorganizing to get it, take advantage of them. Then he says, we can have a common agenda if we're working to bring a new manufacturing plant here instead of them having to navigate five different departments or six. There should be one door that they go through to open the plant. And so he says, we've got to cut the red tape to get them through to, you know, to get, them, get the construction started that they want them to start. I laud their um, initiative to try to, to address red tape. I don't know about their method. Well, they are the red tape. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. And I guess you could say, well, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to admit, well, okay, we failed in what we've done up till yes, now. Yeah, true enough. And that's worth commenting on. But they still don't seem to understand why they failed. And that's what I'm trying to sort of get at the root of today, because I think they're, they're, they're just spinning their tires. They need a mirror. Um, well, it's interesting, you know. Um, Joe Swan says, quote, What we're all surprised with is, and this is what, this what surprises me, is that they're surprised, is that despite our best efforts, unemployment remains around 9%. So obviously something's not working. We have to get more involvement, he says. This week we had the announcement about skills training. We have over 150 skills training organizations in London, he proudly repeated. But nobody's using them, apparently. We have people available, but nobody with the skills. And that's what the problem is in London right now. It's a skills shortage, not a, not a labor shortage as such. Labor is an old-fashioned thing. It's skills now. And he says, we have to find a way to energize everyone together and tackle this problem. We have talented people running the current initiative, and we're going ahead to do things more efficiently. Now, I have no idea what he means by efficiently in terms of actually having jobs to show for any of these efforts, but I think they're just talking about efficiency on their end of things, doing things <laughs> smoother from their end. You know, I'd rather have three people do it than ten. I think they're, they're going about it all wrong. If you think about skills, what good is a person with skills and training if... There is no place to employ him. It, Look at electric motive diesel. When the they pulled out, first. you had hundreds of people who were highly trained and highly skilled out of work because a EMDC or uh, EMDC electric motive oh, yeah. diesel yeah. moved out of uh, out of the country, yeah. out, of, out of London. You need an employer. That's what exactly. You and uh, any case, they want to do this. And then Garrison asks him an amazing question. He says, "Well, these changes save us money." This I had to quote verbatim. Okay, you ready for this? Quote. Well, there's a possibility that that can happen. Again, we have a number of agencies, boards, and commissions, all of them doing good work. But we'll take a look at that through a structural review and come back with really the optimum structure that's most efficient. If that saves us some money, then that's an added bonus, end quote. What'd you get out of that? Um, they're navel-gazing. <laughs> um, again, it doesn't address the problem. Where's the, employ uh, the employers? I remember the exact... Nobody cares about City Hall and how they're running efficiently or whatever. Well, sure, save 10,000 there. First 10, of all, they aren't there. even. Save 20,000 there. Whoop-ee. 
What you need is an employer to bring in hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars, and only private enterprise can do that, not government. Right. Laissez-nous faire is the word <laughs> they should understand. Get out of the way. Well, Let them do it. That's, they're going in the exact opposite direction. And, you know, I remember distinctly at the time I heard those words live, thinking I was listening to a bunch of blather and hokum. I actually thought of those words. <laughs> blather and hokum. <laughs> you know, just nonsense. Like, it, it, and it sounded so obvious in his voice that he was struggling for some kind of clarity, you know, like trying to say something. But it was just one of those looped uh, thoughts that goes nowhere. Jim Chapman had a good word to describe such nonsense. Oh, blather and hokum. Bourgeois. Bourgeois. There you go. That was a good one, yes. That one's for Jim. Um, but, of course, this is a big announcement. We have to realize this is a huge announcement. And then, much to my shock, then Phil McLeod entered the fray, and lo and behold, he said almost exactly what I have said on this show in the past. I heard the conversation, and I really liked what Phil had to say. Couldn't believe it. And he said, uh, he said politicians... First of all, he gave his spin on what he saw happening at City Hall. And he said, politicians want to have a much closer hand in the economic development policies of this city than they currently have. And I would argue that's not a good development. This is not a good move, he says. The previous council had put together an economic development strategy with six aspects under the general theme that London should build on its strengths. Health research, health sector, food industry, advanced marketing. You know, he says, that's how we got some of the businesses we got, including Dr. Oktar. Oktar, what's it called? Utker. Utker. But by the, by the way, you know how we got that? We gave him a government loan. Mm -hmm. That's how they came here. And that concerns me, too. But in any case, he says, all of these plans take time, and the time was not given. Apparently, he blames Joe Fontana for when Joe Fontana took over, he implemented his own strategy and tossed out all the previous work that had been done up till then, as though it hadn't existed. And council is now planning to take over economic development in London, which would mean, uh, you know, Peter White would not be running it from the London Economic Development Committee kind of thing, which was an arm's length um, organization. And yet no new strategy exists. And he points out the red tape now at City Hall is a consequence not of builders and developers' needs and necessities, but a consequence of politics at City Hall and having to comply with political agendas, most of which are colored green. That's true. You the know? environmental assessments can sometimes take stuff. years. Oh, amazing stuff. So he says this is taking what was once a separate entity from city council at arm's length from the politicians, quote, because the politicians are supposed to be setting policy for the city. I can't believe somebody actually said that, somebody who knows what they're supposed to be doing. They're not supposed to have their hands in running things, he said, and that's what this council wants to do so much, Fontana and Swan especially, he says. They want to run London Transit, Tourism London, the Economic Development Committees, you name it. They say they can run it, but they can't, he says. They're terrible at running things. Their job is to make policy and to set economic strategy, then let others do it. That's basically mm -hmm. the way it should work. Now, nobody knows whether it's a done deal yet, whether it's been uh, put together in secret meetings or what, you know. So I'm just wondering how many people are holding their breath in anticipation of all the great jobs and prosperity that will come with this reorganization and reshuffled municipal approach to attracting jobs to this city. And, um, you know, why is this likely not to work? And what's the problem? Or is the problem what we really think? That's what I want to comment on when we come back after this break. And we'll return right after this. Behold, the incorporated city of Majestic, a city experiencing a rate of growth few people could have anticipated. Now, 
We've been a noisy neighbor, and for that, I want to apologize. In the midst of all our backslapping, we forgot a fundamental principle of smart growth. If you're going to poop, make sure you can flush. <laughs> what we need is a bowl. Agrestic is that bowl. Now, in exchange for the right to redirect a small portion of our sewage through your town, we'll retrofit your existing sewage system with the most advanced technology available at no cost to you. Now, I know these are tough times for Agrestic. Your tax base is shrinking while the cost of maintaining basic services is rising. But it doesn't have to be that way. We're neighbors. And this is a hand extended over the fence. Thank you, Mr. Graf. Sullivan, please. Sullivan. Dumb name. Oh, are we prepared to commit our city to being Majestic's bowl because the guy next door brought up were a cool model? So I'm not 100% sold. Do you understand the numbers? I do. And? And we have to be able to renegotiate on our terms and not theirs. Otherwise, we... What's going on? I thought that we dealt with this last night. We did. Uh-huh. Why are you here? Why am I here? Why is he here? Slumming. Yeah. And it's a good thing, too, because no one here knows his ass from a spreadsheet in the ground. Or her ass, as the case may be. Well, thanks for coming by. But we don't need you. We agreed to hire an independent accountant who is going to walk us through the entire proposal. It's in the minutes. Oh. Right, Sarah? The city coffers are empty, Celia. Doug, what's your take on this Majestic proposal? Basically, Majestic's overflowing river of crap has got no place to go but through us. Like a fiscal colonic. We got him by the sphincter. Could be our road to riches. Our road to riches? You know, the last time I checked, you weren't even on the council. Ah, good old local politics. Almost as entertaining as what's happening in London. What's happening? What was happening in... Sometimes I wonder if we're not living the aggressive life here. I'll tell you. Now, in the midst of London's local scene of high unemployment and a 1.2% fake property tax increase. Since the 0% was going to be fake, well, then the 1.2% should be fake, too. Um, the rest of the province, the rest of Canada, and the rest of the world are going through pretty much the same greater crisis, each in their own way. And we're in, inside each of one of those, right? Each one's inside the other. And each is at their own stage or level of the crisis, whatever we want to call that crisis. And what we're calling a crisis is really just this major coming um, economic upheaval and change, which has been underway for years and which will likely continue for years. The times, as they say, they are a-changing. This ain't our parents' economy, writes Alex Butelier in the March 1st, 2013 London Metro News. And he writes, when my parents were 26 and freshly out of university, they were expecting their first child and building their own house on land that they owned. Many in my generation today are having a slightly dot, 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 different experience as we trans transition into our post-undergraduate life. 
and we're more likely to have a harder time getting started on the next chapter. That's something I can relate to watching a lot of the kids, the younger kids today. We had it easy compared to the kids today in terms of getting jobs and getting started in life. D- did you have that experience? or No, I found it very easy. Yeah? Well, actually... Compared well, to today? Well, in my home province of Newfoundland, mm-hmm. no, it was very difficult. In my community, there were 60% unemployment for people in my age group. Come here to London, bang, got a job within a week. Yeah, that's how it used to be. The writer cited the cause as increasing barriers to young people, like increased tuition fees. And he cites a 200% increase, get this, between 1991 and 2007, a 17-year span, and only 200% increase. That's cheap. And that was the only barrier cited in his article. So, clearly, a very narrow point of view there. But welcome to the great economic divide where you don't get what your parents got because they got to vote first. (laughs) That's pretty well how it works. But fear not, some people have solutions. Goldwyn Emerson, in his March 16 London Free Press column, Economic Divide Needs Bridging, notes that, quote, we still have a large middle class, but with greater inequalities than previously. It even bothers me when somebody says, we still have a middle class. Uh, That means we're going in a certain direction that you're kind of aware of, that we're not going to have one soon. (laughs) You know, like, we still have a middle class. Well, isn't that nice to know? And he says, uh, but with greater inequalities than previously. Those in charge of working conditions and levels of pay, let's call them the elite, over time have gained a disproportionate share of Canada's wealth, resources, government control, and political influence. Well, it's those last two that are the key. He says many religions and service clubs already share their resources, but now we need to let our politicians know that governments at all levels ought to help in the battle for fairness and equality. Emerson recommends we follow the five recommendations for improvement made by the Hunger Count Report of 2012. One, increase affordable housing. Two, increase social investment in northern Canada. Three, ensure adequate pensions for our most vulnerable seniors. Four, invest in support of quality social assistance programs. And five, act to address the decline in well-paying jobs. Take a deep breath, Robert. I, mean, it's, I get the impression that these politicians at all levels of government are trying to live vicariously through the good work and success of business. Oh, it's look like at what I we said, did. Yeah, We've yeah, created these they're jobs. They're pretending to be capitalists, and they We've are. lowered the unemployment rate. We've No, you've done nothing. Exactly. You're in the way. Get out of the way. The best politician is one you don't even know the name of. Well, that might not be always the case, but you like to know his name if he's a good politician because yeah. you know, that's a guy you don't want to forget. That's the one you want to blame. This one's another interesting one. They all want a legacy. Christia that's a problem. Christia Freeland in the March 23rd uh, London Free Press. Politics going one way, economics another. That didn't even make sense to me at first until I saw her context. Like Goldwyn Emerson, who is concerned with inequality, she too is concerned with another form of inequality that's much less acceptable to her. And she writes, quote, Income equality or income inequality, sorry, is one thing. But a permanent division into the haves and have-nots is an entirely different thing and much less acceptable. She cites a U.S. economic study that she says concludes, quote, rising income inequality is the statistical reflection of an increasingly calcified society. The rich are staying rich and the poor are staying poor even as the gap between them grows. That 
didn't really make sense to me because the rich are going to be rich and the poor are going to be poor simply by virtue of their identity. They're going to stay rich or stay poor as long as there's a relative difference between them. The size of the gap is irrelevant. If it's growing or shrinking, the rich are still going to be called rich and the poor are still going to be called poor. They don't exist. They're just classes of income, people with classes of income. But, uh, I mean, they stay, they stay the same. Another institution, and this is, this is again, um, Christia writing, another institution that could temper the consequences of the growing structural inequality in the, uh, the author's document is the state. Oh, wow, these people are so brilliant. They have a lot of good ideas, don't they? And here's the irony in Christia's Freeland's intended cited irony, that she does not see in her own description of the following condition that perhaps... One, the one, political so-called equality, might be the cause of the other, the economic inequality. And she writes, their conclusion that rising uh, income inequality is overwhelmingly permanent is also striking because this stratification is so strongly at odds with the increasing political openness of those same two and a half decades we've just had. Full rights, including marriage for gays and lesbians, are swiftly becoming the status quo. Ethnic minorities have increasing demographic power. The earning power of women is growing. Politics tells a story of increasing inclusion. Economics tells a story of widening and permanent class divide. No wonder so many people are so confused, she concludes. Who? With her, her <laughs> <Me> included. <laughs> and her at the top of the list, too. Can you spot the common thread, the common page, the single idea, the one agenda that all these people already have? Joe Swan doesn't need to start a single agenda. They're all on it. <laughs> Rob the productive to sustain the unproductive. End of story. That's as far as an average politician can see. Everybody's on that page. There is no other page in politics today. I hate to put it so crudely, but until we can get our heads, not just out of the sand, but out of the crap, and then and only then will we ever even begin to see our way out of this problem. The difference between economic power or wealth and political equality is that the first has to be earned and continuously worked for, whereas the second is merely a socio-political condition that only requires a stroke of a legislator's pen to enact. Done. You're, you're equal. No effort on your part. But the other one takes effort. And the people who don't want to put out that effort to get where they're going are voting uh, <laughs> to get the stuff out of the people who are putting the effort. I'll tell you, governments at all levels have been helping us to our economic deaths and stagnation. Kevin Libin, way back in the June 2010 edition of Financial Post magazine, wrote under the heading, The Stimulus Bluff, quote, the conservative government claims the economists are all wet. Quote, economic theory and history is clear. Governments must make sure funds are put to productive use in the economy to create jobs. End quote. Prime Minister Stephen Harper said, contradicting his own 1991 economics master's thesis. See, he's a politician now. He's not an economist anymore. <laughs> right? People don't get that. They think that they're still the same as what they were before. When you are a you know, hot dog vendor and somebody hires you to run a bank teller, you're going to be a bank teller. You're going to act like a bank teller. You're not going to act like the hot dog stand vendor anymore. Then he writes, Unfortunately, stimulus spending is the Pascal's wager of economics. This, was, this is great. 17th century philosopher Blaise Pascal couldn't prove God existed, but figured he might as well be devout since if there is a God, he'll be saved from damnation. And if there wasn't, well... There's no harm in trying, right? Politicians see stimulus spending the same way. They can't prove it works. But if they sit on their hands during a downturn 
they know they'll be blamed for inaction should things turn worse. If and when the economy recovers, as it has here, the government's happy to take the credit. And if more misery comes, then they can claim that they've just staved off a larger calamity. So it's a win-win-win situation for them, as long as they're seen to be doing something. That's actually very smart for a politician. It is. And he says, get used to this. We'll see this routine recur. As long as future taxpayers get to pay the bill via future debt payments, it's as risk-free a gambit as Pascal's. Hmm. Now, that's the end of his article. Now, it really doesn't matter how much politicians like Joe Swan and others want to control the economic development of the city centrally. That's simply not going to cut it, nor will it cut any red tape. What's missing in all of their plans, whether for job creation or just simple wealth redistribution, which is what both actions really are when carried out by government, is the free will factor. We simply no longer have a free enough from government economy to sustain our governments and the standard of living that we were once used to. Today's economic planners believe that everyone lower on the rung or down and out on the economic ladder has an entitlement to the earnings of others who simply happen to be more economically productive at a given point in time. What we really need to reinstate by way of entitlement is the one thing and one thing only our entitlement to the economic freedom that we all once shared, with none of the permanent barriers and divisions created by our monstrous welfare state to which all of our politicians are truly committed. You can see it. And they should be committed, because crazy is what you call doing the same thing over and over and over again when you already know it doesn't work. End of story. Good enough? End of London, by the looks of it. Yeah, I tell you, I don't know where we're going, but more on this on a continued chapter in the future. And we'll be back after these breaks. They need us, and we need them. Let's be their bowl. No. This is a closed session, Mr. Wilson. Hold that thought. I have an announcement to make. Uh, for personal reasons, I've decided to give up my position on the City Council. So in accordance with our... 324, paragraph C, we are hereby compelled to elect an interim council member to replace me until the next election. I'm now opening up the floor to nominations. I nominate Doug Wilson. I second the Doug Wilson nomination. All those in favor of the resolution to elect Doug Wilson as interim council member say aye. Aye. Oh, you guys. All those against? Nay. The resolution passes. Doug Wilson will take my seat on the council effective immediately. Now, this can't possibly be legal. It is. And what makes you so sure? I wrote the bylaws. Oh. So, now that that's that, I would like to open up a new order of business. Since there's no longer conflict of interest, I would like to nominate Mitch Kamen to contract all requisite landscaping that will accompany the highway. This is bullshit. No, Celia, it's human You gotta get on the same page with us. I'm not gonna allow this to happen. You are not going to turn this into your little corrupt kingdom again. This time, there's going to be checks and balances. There's going to be oversight. Are you hearing me? I'm shaking. Let's throw ya. No, yeah. Here we go.
Mr. Bennett. Yes? This is Bob Woodward of the Washington Post. I'm sorry to bother you at home. I was wondering if we could confirm some information on one of your employees, Mr. Howard Hunt. Oh, what kind of information? It's just profile information, mostly. We know, for example, that he works for Mellon & Company, or did work for Mellon & Company, as a writer. He's also a novelist. We know that he works in the office of Mr. Charles Colson at the White House. And the CIA. And the CIA. Well, if you're conducting that kind of an investigation, certainly it comes as no surprise to you that Howard was with the CIA. No, no surprise at all. Hunt worked for the CIA till 1970, from 49 to 70. Now, this is on deep background, but the FBI thinks he's involved with the break-in. And what else you got? According to White House personnel, Hunt definitely worked there as a consultant for Colson. That's Charles Colson, the prison special counsel. Did you call the White House press office? I went over there. I talked to them. They said Hunt hadn't worked there for three months. Then a PR guy said this weird thing to me. He said, I'm convinced that neither Mr. Colson or anyone else at the White House had any knowledge of or participation in this deplorable incident at the Democratic National Committee. Isn't that what you expect them to say? Absolutely. So, I never asked about Watergate. I simply asked what were Hunt's duties at the White House. They volunteered he was innocent, but nobody asked if he was guilty. Be careful how you write it. And welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. If you tuned in last week, you would have uh, heard us talking with Salim Mansour as our guest, and the conversation on that show briefly touched on the polemic argument. And that is that style of argument characterized by aggressive attacks and controversy. It's a polemic argument when one takes the worst argument an opponent has and treats them or treats it as if that is his only argument. Fascinating discussion. It actually. was, actually, yes. I mean, it, the show actually followed uh, in, in emails between you and myself and Salim later on as we still got into the heated discussion of uh, polemicism and, and Islam versus Islamism and whether or not thought yeah, very basic that. philosophic mm. issues we got into, which we're going to follow up on in the not-too-long-distant future. Anyway, the polemic argument, as we talked about on that show and our emails later on, it involves ignoring any good argument your opponent may have in order to win your side of the debate. And I have to admit, even on this show, we do that sometimes. Sometimes you just want to win the argument and you get out there, and sometimes you ignore things which go against your argument in order to win it. It's a it, very natural thing to do. It is, and sometimes time is a factor. Mm -hmm. Sometimes knowledge is a factor. Sometimes you sound like you're arguing from a polemic point of view, but you've thought it all out many times in advance. And, so that's and sometimes so, there is no good argument right, on the other and, side. And so <laughs> you can't tell. You have to You have to know the person. You have to know the argument. But one, a one-time exposure won't tell you much, but two or three you can pretty well know. No. But another characteristic of the polemics uh, debate, of course, is deviousness and sleight of hand and if not outright deception through evasion. And I don't think that we do that on this show, Bob. I was reminded of polemics when I was reading the National Post uh, this Monday and came across an article by Tanner Colby entitled Deconstructing Woodward, How a Biography of Hollywood Comedian John Belushi Laid Bare the Watergate's Legend Journalistic Failings. And the article was originally published on Slate.com. You can find it there. Now, for the younger people in our, our, our audience, let me fill it you in on who Bob Woodward is. He has worked at the Washington Post since 1971. He's authored 17 books and is perhaps regarded as the epitome of the reporter. 
His work with Carol Bernstein of the Washington Post broke the Watergate case open in the early 70s, resulting in the arrest and conviction of several people in the Nixon administration and undoubtedly contributed to the eventual resignation of President Nixon himself. If any writer were to criticize Woodward, it would be considered blasphemy by the reporting establishment. Nevertheless, this is what Colby had to say in his article, and I'm quoting here. During an interview with Politico, Bob Woodward came forward to claim he'd been threatened in an email by a senior White House official for daring to reveal certain details about the negotiations over the budget sequester. The White House responded by releasing the email exchange Woodward was referring to, which turned out to be nothing more than a cordial exchange between the reporter and Obama's economic advisor, Gene Sperling, who was clearly implying nothing more than that Woodward would, quote, regret taking a position that would soon be shown to be false. A rather trivial scandal, but the incident did manage to raise important questions about Woodward's behavior. Was he cynically trumping up the administration's so-called threat, or does he just not know how to read an email? Pretty soon, <laughs> those questions tipped over into the standard Beltway discussion that transpires anytime Woodward does anything. How accurate is his reporting? Does he deserve his legendary status? Unquote. Colby then uses Woodward's biography of John Belushi, Wired, The Short Life and Fast Times of John Belushi, to suggest that Woodward is a polemicist. Although not using that word, he suggests that Woodward, while reporting the facts of Belushi's life, misrepresented the true character of the comedian, painting him as a drug-addicted, undisciplined, lazy, unfocused jerk, which is in stark contrast, apparently, to the way Belushi's friends and co-workers saw him. Dan Aykroyd, for example, called Woodward's book Exploitative Pulp Trash. Now, Colby concludes his article by saying that Woodward's biography of Belushi was a failure as journalism. And when you imagine Woodward using the same approach to cover secret meetings about drone strikes and the budget sequester and other issues of vital national importance, well, you have to stop and shudder. Colby says. So much for the character of the Pulitzer Prize winning exemplar of journalism Bob Woodward. Forty years of journalism pilloried by Tanner Colby who may have his own motives questioned as he just released his own biography of John <laughs> Belushi imaginatively titled Belushi a Biography. By the way, did I mention that sarcasm can also be thought of as being polemical? <laughs> Interesting. The, the book itself is described in Wikipedia as a non-objective, positive portrayal of the actor's life and influence. No polemicism there. So who is Tanner Colby? His website offers this succinct bio. Quote, Tanner Colby is the co-author of Belushi, a biography. <laughs> <laughs> and the New York Times bestseller, The Chris Farley Show, a biography in three acts. He lives in Brooklyn, New York with his wife, Danielle, and their dog, Spanky. So, we have a good example of the polemic uh, tactic of pushing your argument, in this case, Tanner Colby's view on John Belushi, by taking a few examples from a rival author on the same subject, and neglecting the author's history, the 40-year history of a man thought of as a living paradigm of journalistic integrity. And he's dismissing of Woodward's concern, by the way, over the use of the word regret, coming from the White House, is not understandable considering Woodward's breaking of the Watergate scandal and the taking down of a president. It doesn't require a great deal of imagination to suppose that the Obama White House wouldn't stoop to giving Woodward a good talking to. 
over his reporting on the current administration's policies. So I think Woodward is justified in being a little concerned when he gets a, a memo from the White House saying you're going to regret your actions. I don't know the real story behind John Belushi, and I can't say for certain whether or not Bob Woodward deserves all of his accolades, or if Tanner Colby has a cat to keep Spanky comfortable or company. <laughs> Such is the result of the polemic argument. It's not scholarly. It's a one-sided smear job which leaves only confusion in its wake. And recently, here in Ontario at least, we've been subjected to another sort of polemic argument, which is not too unfamiliar if you know Bob Woodward and his writing style and the, political, uh, the polemic argument as just uh, recounted by Tanner Colby. If you've been reading about the goings-on of Toronto Mayor Rob Ford this week, you'll see another example of media bias. Boy, that's for sure. Yes, indeed. And the polemic argument. I know that you have a huge file right, right here, there right here. <laughs> on Rob Ford and the smear job being perpetrated on that guy. You know, I, there's no love lost between me and Rob Ford. I don't know the guy. I don't know if he's good or bad mayor or whatever. I know he is a conservative. I know the Toronto Star is liberal. And I think that's the germane issue right there to see the tactics that the, the, the Toronto Star and, and, the, and the Toronto media and the left-wing press uh, attacking this guy with nothing substantive. Well, this headline here says it all. Ford slugs it out with paper, you know? like Yeah. yeah. yeah if you read that particular article, which I had, that's an unbelievable uh, thing that happened to, to Rob Ford at a, a um, an award ceremony, I believe, for a boxer. And anyway, on Tuesday, the Toronto Star uh, published... An article headlined, Rob Ford Intoxicated, Toronto Mayor Asked to Leave Military Ball. You can find that online on the Toronto Star website. And arguably written in the style of Bob Woodward, oddly enough, a slipshod narrative based on the testimony of unnamed sources bound together as a narrative of the witnesses. By the way, that is how some people have described Bob Woodward's style of writing. The whole Watergate thing came out um, as a sort of narrative from unnamed sources. You'll remember the, the one major one called Deep Throat. Yeah, oh, that's what, yeah, that's great yes. too. Now, uh, and if, by the way, if you want a sort of a recap of the Watergate uh, undercover job that Woodward did and, and the deep throat, uh, just look at the, the movie based on his book called All the President's Men, starring Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman in the roles of Bob Woodward and Carl Weinstein. Which is where our clips came from today. That's right, yeah, yeah you'll hear a couple more clips from that too. Now, both Christy Blatchford of the National Post and Simon Kent of the Toronto Sun have written to express their disbelief at the poor journalism of the Toronto Star. Kent writes, quote, It's rare in journalism to publish so many untested claims, allegations, smears, and assertions about one man and offer the accuser's obscurity, unquote. Blatchford wrote, At the Star and in other small L quarters of the city, People were mortified to find Rob Ford won the election. Ever since, as reader Will Newton wrote me Tuesday, quote, the view is, if we can't beat him at the polls, we'll keep him so busy defending himself against all manner of accusations, true or not, and people will believe the ploys and he'll just give up and quit. This sounds, continues uh, Blatchford, too much like the high school I attended. Oh, sorry, this isn't Blatchford speaking. It's still the writer, Will Newton, who wrote to Blatchford. This sounds too much like the high school I attended where those who thought they were the elite and the entitled ran the cliques and the rest of us were just trying to get by. 
unquote. Now, journalists and the newspapers they write for have an important job to do informing the public. The fourth and estate, in for yeah, sense. Yeah, the fourth estate. They have privilege in law. And they also design to... There's no illusions here about what newspapers are designed to do. It's not just to inform, but it's to sell newspapers. That's why they exist. It's a business. They have to entertain. And to push politics. And that's Uh, exactly right. As a matter of fact, the history of the Toronto Star, as I understand it, was as a mouthpiece for the Liberal Liberal Party of Canada. Yes. You had to be a member of the party to be on on their executive. That's, That's right, and I think that still stands today. It is a Liberal Party. A partisan newspaper. But, you know, what they're doing, I think, with these kinds of smear campaigns against Rob Ford, an obvious conservative politician, is bringing the reporting profession into disrepute. That's not to say that such power has not been used in such a manner before. But it's always worth remembering for ourselves that reporters and publishers can be unethical. They're not scholars. They all have political leanings and have, since the time of Mercury, distorted facts, spun fables, and slung mud. And that's not going to change. What might just change, though, Bob, is our ability to spot this rot, and when it happens, (laughs) use it to line our bird cages. Because that's all this particular smear campaign of the Toronto Star is. It's rot, and its only purpose is to line our bird cages because that's exactly where it belongs. I don't know Rob Ford. He may be uh, have a drinking problem. But, you I, know, I haven't you heard never any find, evidence of that. You, no, neither have I. If you I, read through that article, not one person there explicitly names uh, themselves and says that Rob Ford has a drinking problem. They're all anonymous. That's not journalism. That's smear. That's mudslinging. That's using your position as a reporter to try to bring down a party, uh, a, a, a politician whose politics you disagree with. It's yeah. really not worthy of uh, any newspaper at all. We're going to have some final uh, concluding remarks on this when we come back after this break. I was having lunch at the San Suzuki. Oh, this White House guy, a good one, a pro, came up and asked, "What is this Watergate compulsion with you guys?" Compulsion? I think and I said, story. This is not compulsion. I said, "Well, we think it's important." And he said, "If it's Thanks. so damn important, who in the hell are Woodward and Bernstein?" Well, now, what do you expect <laughs> to say from the White House? You're doing a great job. Yeah. I now, why don't you ask him what he's really saying? He wants to take the, the, the story away from Woodstein and, and uh, give it to the National Guard. I have some experienced guys sitting around who know the politicians who have the contacts. We're aware of exactly what you like You people. said it, sitting around. Dan, it's a dangerous story for this paper. What if your boys get it wrong? Then it's our ass, isn't it? Well, we all have to go out and work for a living. Yeah. All right, here it is. <laughs> That's it, folks. Okay. Good work. Hey, Scott, we've seen how dangerous. Well, it's not just that we're using unnamed sources that bothers me, or that everything we print the White House denies, or that almost no other papers are reprinting our stuff. What then? Look, there are over 2,000 reporters in this town. Are there five on Watergate? Where did the Washington Post suddenly get the monopoly on wisdom? Why would the Republicans do it? McGovern is self-destructing, just like Humphrey, Muskie, the bunch of them. 
I don't believe the story. Doesn't make sense. slip away yes you've done worse than let all of them slip away get people feeling sorry for him i didn't think that was possible in a conspiracy like this you build from the outer edges and you go step by step if you shoot too high and miss everybody feels more secure you put the investigation back months yes, we know that and if we're wrong we're resigning were we wrong You'll have to find that out, won't you? Listen, I'm tired of your games. I don't want hints. I need to know what you know. It was a Halderman operation. The whole business was run by Halderman, the money, everything. It won't be easy getting at him. He was insulated. You'll have to find out how. Mitchell started doing covert stuff before anyone else. The list is longer than anyone can imagine. It involves the entire U.S. intelligence community. FBI, CIA, justice. It's incredible. Cover-up had little to do with Watergate. It was mainly to protect the covert operations. It leads everywhere. Get out your notebook. There's more. Your lives are in danger. And I have no doubt that Bob Woodward's and Carol Weinstein's lives were in danger when they broke the Watergate story. I really don't, because the FBI was involved, the CIA, the uh, the White House, and um, they rubbed some people the wrong way. But um, just to get back to the journalism, George Jonas wrote on Wednesday in an article called License to Muzzle, when it comes to the media, there are only two tricks, kick butt or kick ass. That's the polemic point of view, actually. In other words, you have to be controversial. You have to attack. You just don't simply report the facts. That's not what journalism is about. It's to put forward an idea based on facts. It doesn't matter that your opinion's in there. That's fine, as long as you mention that it's your opinion. Well, as I say, no news is good news, because news is naturally comes out of some kind of conflict. Correct. Whether a physical one, a verbal one, a philosophical one, um, an economic one, some kind of conflict. That's what makes news. And that's what makes it entertaining. And that's what makes it newsworthy. You always hear people writing into the paper saying, oh, why can't you put something a little more, you know, pleasant on the front page instead of this picture of a car accident or somebody getting shot? There's a good reason for that. Because it doesn't sell papers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there's a fine line, I think, between being controversial, bringing out important facts about your local politicians, and deliberately trying to destroy their careers because you dislike them politically. A fine line? I would have said a real thick line. I don't know. <laughs> well, regardless you know, you know, of the thickness, I think I'm the Toronto Star have crossed it. I'm still waiting for the London Free Press to print something saying that Sarah Thompson is, is a wingnut who accused Rob Ford. They haven't said that yet. They haven't mentioned anything about her. It was brought out in the Sun News, yes. It was brought out in Sun News. It was brought out in the Post. It was brought out on our show, on, on Sun News TV, but not in the free press that originally published the other side of the story. National Post just recently published a thing, a quote by uh, Barbara Emile, saying that, um, uh, I'm going from memory here, that... It's probably right here. Sarah Thompson invited Conrad Black, Emile's husband, 
to uh, she invited him to go to oh. bed for an exclusive <laughs> interview. Um, he rejected the offer, but did endorse her for the mayoralty. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here, here's an article from the from the National Post. Accuser not playing with a full deck, mayor suggests, right? And at least they talk about the other side of the point, point of view, mm-hmm. right? Never mind, they don't pick sides. At least they tell you there's another side. The free press hasn't done that yet. That's the polemic um, argument. Only to pick out one argument which suits your purpose and ignore the rest. Here's what the free press did right after the whole uh, Sarah Thompson thing. They, they, they wrote an ar- article with the heading Teflon and Kevlar and Puppy Dog Tails as if to say that the only reason Ford got off is because he's just Teflon. He's got Teflon on him. He's another McGinty, apparently, which is not the case. You know, about the London Free Press, I think you have to make a distinction because it is a Sun paper and a QMI paper. I'm wondering about that. Why and haven't we, they? Well, look at this. Uh, Simon Kent, who wrote the... Um, the uh, the quote that I just recently said about um, Rob Ford's mistreatment at the Toronto Star, he works for Toronto Sun. He works for the Sun chain. Yes. There's a distinction between those particular writers, like the Ezra Levants, um, even the Warren Kinsellas, and the staff writers at the London Free Press who may have been there for years and have yet to come under the, uh, <laughs> how should I say, influence of their Sun masters. I don't know, maybe they're waiting for them all to retire. But I think that's probably why you'll find local events. I don't know very if that excuses um, leaving something like that. Well, out, it doesn't out excuse of, it, and I don't, know, don't think it should. I'm just trying to make the distinction between the local reporters versus the Sun media reporters, because Sun is usually uh, quite fair. Yeah, and, and that's why I was wondering why the free press hasn't done anything over this. Even if I was worried about my own self-interest, I would note that... Readers can read other newspapers that are con- conflicting with what my newspaper is saying. Do I not care about my own newspaper's credibility? I'm begin- beginning to think that, th- that they actually don't care. I think they probably think that uh, the public are probably insular. They'll pick up the London Free Press, but don't have time to read the Post or the Toronto Star or the Sun or whatever. So they're probably one-person papers. People like you and me who are in the business of, of, of politics... Then they're purposely trying to skew our point of view and not yes. know the truth. Yes, it's, a, it's well, purposeful. And, and, you know, I, I don't mind papers. I've always liked papers and commentators and newscasters who had strong points of view. Mm-hmm. Because regardless of whether you agreed with them or disagreed with them, you knew where they stood, and you know where you stood in relationship to them, and you knew where the truth stood in relationship to them because there were some fixed points. It's the deviousness I despise. But, but the deviousness and then and the not telling you and then finding out after the fact that uh, everything you've been told is not true, that, that sense of betrayal is huge. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the reasons I stay away from the star. Yes. I mean, I haven't been reading the star for years. I read it only as a, as a train crash. You want to yeah. witness a train crash. You have to read part, it as right? the Russians read Pravda back <laughs> in the day. Yeah, that's pretty much about it. But uh, I'll tell you, between uh, the news people and what's going on in city halls, etc., uh, it's getting kind of scary out there, to, to say the least. Speaking of broke cities, did you notice this thing in, in uh, just a quick closing point? In Detroit's bankrupt? Oh, yes. And uh, the state of Michigan has taken over, quote, broke city, according to the paper yesterday. And what's the second headline? What do they have to do? New boss has power to change union packs. You can't do anything without getting rid of those unions, and that's where a lot of the money's going. Well, they are the foot soldiers of the Marxists. And uh, they're the ones who are probably causing all the trouble for the people in politics through the media as well. Hmm. All unionized. Are we done for another week? I think that about covers it, Bob. Okay. Well, we'll see what we have coming up next week when we return on our journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do. Be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you one week from today. Right. Fade into color, and color into black and white. Under-
The little girl who sold the most Girl Scout cookies? Damn! Okay, let's get it over with. Everybody out. Come on, move, move! This is the part of the job I hate. Well, hello, little girl. What's your name? Lisa Myers. Well, Lisa, if you're that good a sales lady, maybe I could use you up on Capitol Hill. <laughs> Well, it was nice meeting you. Come on, Lisa. Come on. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> 